America has always been a place that boasts about freedom, but for much of its history, that freedom wasn't free for everyone. Women, especially women of color, have had to prove themselves in society for most of U.S. history. Today, we focus on two women who didn't just want to be recognized, but wanted to be remembered. Maya Angelou and Toshiko Akiyoshi pushed against the odds to become some of the most influential artists and activists of their times, showing us that their hardships and social pressures only formed them into true gems. I wonder if there's any way that we can make a supercut of somehow getting Zuki dancing to our song. Zuki, do you know how to get jiggy with it? I mean, we have that video of me from last New Year's oh, where yeah. I'm dancing <laughs> with her. So I could right. just dub the music over the top of she it. She was so small. And look at her. She's still small. Oh, just a baby. Yeah. I seen her grow from a little baby. You really have. It makes me want to cry. All right, and welcome back to another episode <laughs> of the Gems of History podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Roosh, and join with me, as always, we have the illustrious, the two-week-in-a-row back-to-back awesome shirt, Jacob Shop. Hello, hello. Yes, I am wearing another fun shirt. It's not as, like, visually as fun. It's lacking lighthouses. But... It is the most comfortable, I'm going to call it a flannel, because I, I don't know what else to call it, but it is the most comfortable shirt I've ever worn, I think. Comfy flannel. What will like, science and everything do next? We thought we'd have flying cars by now, but no. <laughs> no, we, we just, just have, have real soft shirts. Really soft shirts. And of course, we have the main paw caster, Zuki here. She is not giving a lot of energy today. No, you know, she might need to pay, and she's sleeping, all right? Good night. Well, we have a really fun episode uh, this week, as always. Uh, this month, we're covering a lot of different stories about really historically impactful women. Because it's Ladies Month. Ladies Month. It's actually not. That's like March, I'm pretty sure, but we decided to do it in January. So. When everyone else zigs, we zag. Yep. <laughs> Someone told me that, and I was like, well, you know what? Time's a construct, so face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I literally said that. Well, <laughs> Not the face are, part, that. but I said, yeah, time's a construct, so. Time's a construct, yeah. But anyway, we're covering two extremely influential, spe- specifically in the arts, uh, as well as, you know, activists. Uh, we're covering Maya Angelou, and I'm going to let you pronounce the lady that you're covering today, because uh, I cannot. I like, is. do you like how I sent you the... <laughs> Yeah, you were like, give him the hard name. Yep. Uh, And then we're going to be covering uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi. Well, there we go. I'm I'm hopefully going to keep pronouncing that correctly. Toshiko Akiyoshi. Yes. So I'm excited. These are are both very interesting. And uh, they went through it. That they did. I mean, of course, they born and raised in America. And like you said in the intro. Well... Akiyoshi wasn't born in America. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes. She eventually made it here. And still, when she got here, wasn't easy. So, Right, right. Just kind of giving you some different stories. Last week, we covered the lovely lady of Aquitaine. Yes. um, Which was a very, I guess, more, I don't even know how you describe it, more drama-filled, crazy, like, royal family type story. Yeah, the tension, medieval story. Right, right. But today we have two stories of just extremely influential and powerful women who went through a lot. You know what's crazy? 
is these stories were a lot easier to find information on. That is probably why we should start doing more modern <laughs> stories. Because I've been trying to do research for next week's story, and there's like maybe two articles that have like more than just a brief summary of her life. So it's this was a, a nice refresher getting stories that are more modern that I can actually look up things on. So Right, right. We actually get full-fledged, you know, we never have to say... But we actually don't know. True. So, but, yeah, these uh, are facts this time. Yeah. But without any further ado, let's jump into the life of Maya Angelou. Uh, she was born on April 4th, 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri. Her birth name is... I, I love her birth name. It's beautiful. Marguerite Ann Johnson. That is very, it's a beautiful. beautiful. I love the name Marguerite. Are you going to call dibs on it? Ever have a girl? No. I already have, dibs. I have two girl names picked out if I ever have a girl. So hopefully my wife likes them. I do have a name picked out if I have a girl, but my current girlfriend always shits on it whenever oh, I really? bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, it's gonna depend on if I ever find a woman to marry and have kids with if she likes it. Right. That's the big thing. I don't know what I'm, if I have a boy. I don't really care what he's named. But <laughs> he can just be. Like, he can be anybody. Right. But like I said, she was born April fourth, uh, nineteen twenty-eight, in St. Louis, Missouri. Angelou had a very difficult childhood. Uh, her parents split up when she was very young, and she and she and her older brother Bailey Angelou were sent to live with their father's mother Ann Henderson in Stamps, Arkansas. Yeah, Bailey Jr. was her brother. His mm-hmm. father was Bailey. Fought in World War One. Then he became a doorman in L.A. That talk is about a shift, a drastic change in career. Yeah, but uh, apparently her mom was. According to her, a startling beauty. So right, yeah, right, right. Very entrancing woman from mm-hmm. everything. And then, oh, well, I can get to that later. How she got the name Maya because mm-hmm. it actually. Well, I could. I guess I can say it now. Uh, her brother, when they were young, Bailey Junior would call Marguerite my sister. But when he would say that, it sounded like he was saying Maya sister. Oh, and then eventually, yeah. he just shortened it to Maya, and so that's how she adopted the name Maya. Eventually, right. right. That is beautiful. Uh, like we mentioned, she was born in 1928, so keep in mind this is a very drastically different looking America, especially in... Much more segregated. Yes, especially in Arkansas. Uh, well, also all over the world, but yeah, we're talking everywhere. This, we're talking South-South. As an African-American, Angelou, of course, experienced firsthand racial prejudices and discrimination in Arkansas. However, one of the most, I guess, intense situations uh, actually happened at the hands of a family associate around the age of seven. Yeah. Uh, during a visit with her mother, Angelou was, in fact, raped by her mother's boyfriend. And as vengeance for the sexual assault, Angelou's uncles killed the boyfriend. Yeah, I, this, this is an interesting time, because like you said, she's already dealing with the racial prejudice when she's living with her grandma, and then she's getting taught by her Uncle Willie, and I don't know, I, I'm assuming the uncle was actually an uncle, I don't know, because they called the grandma Mama, and right. Uncle Willie was the one that taught them, so, but she was told stories of how when it would go out in public, her grandmother was constantly disrespected by the white people in the area, and how her Uncle Willie had to often hide in his house from the KKK. So she's growing up around that, and then this incident at the age of seven happens, and yeah, it, it's a, it has a huge impact, as you would guess it would, on her life. Yeah, at the age of seven. Yeah. Um, and she was so traumatized by this experience uh, that Angela actually stopped talking. 
Yeah. And the straight re- up stopped talking for five years, it, did not say a word. It wasn't even the fact that she got assaulted. That was the, the reason she stopped talking. The reason she stopped talking was because Freeman was her mom's boyfriend's name. He told Angelou, like, don't tell anyone about this. If you tell mm-hmm. someone, something bad's going to happen. And she ended up telling her older brother, and her brother told the rest of the family the guy got locked up for a day. He got sent to prison. After that day, he only survived for four more days before he was killed. But Angelou said about this that, quote, my seven-year-old logic told me my voice had killed the man, so I stopped speaking for five years, end quote. Right. I mean, a seven-year-old, you don't really, it's, you can't really grasp like what life and death means and yeah, all that. Like That is so unbelievable to go through. Yeah, especially for you to think, like, I got this man killed. Not that, not thinking through it like you would as an adult saying like, well, he got, that was a comeuppance for what he did to me right? and I put him away for something that he did and he deserved to go away for. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that street justice is like good, right. but I mean, it's not her fault at all. And it's sad that she thought it was. Right. Right. Yeah. So that is what she grew up in. She not only, like Jacob mentioned, had to hide from the KKK. She also, I mean, she didn't speak for five years because of such an unbelievably evil act by someone that she probably had relative trust with. Right. And this was right after she had gotten sent off to live with her grandmother, which she said was like a horrible experience in itself. Mm-hmm. Not the living with them part, but the move to live with them because the, her parents sent the kids on their own to yeah. go to the grandmother's house like across the country so they had like name tags on that said who the kids belonged to where they were going and she just said it was a terrible time her brother never really recovered fully from it so yeah it's it's a very tumultuous childhood for both of them right right but despite this childhood uh and during world war ii my angelou then moved to san francisco so back in california And there she won a scholarship to study dance and acting at the California Labor School. It was also during this time that Angelou broke one of her first barriers and became the first black female cable car conductor, a job she only held briefly uh, while she was in San Francisco, but she's already, you know, breaking barriers. Yeah, and she's back talking again by this point. Yes. It was only a five-year stint or so, so it was like into her early like just before she turned into a teenager. And it was kind of cool the reason that she started speaking again, uh, because when she moved back in with their grandmothers after like the whole incident with uh, her mother's boyfriend and everything, she met a woman named Miss Bertha Flowers. And it was said that she made cookies and lemonade for Maya Angelou and then read her poetry. But after several years of doing this, Mrs. Flowers said, I'm not going to read to you anymore and claimed, quote, Maya, you don't like poetry. You'll never like it until you speak it. Mm. And after that, Maya said she went underneath the house with the books of poetry and started reading them. And then she was able to find the courage to speak again through that. And then finally moved back with her mother after that. And yeah, got a job as a cable car employee. Yeah, that is absolutely beautiful, overcoming that adversity and just learning to find your voice again. Yeah. And then... One of the reasons she said she liked the cable or wanted to be a cable car employee is because she liked the outfits. So fashion, yeah. nice. <laughs> she was like, I saw the tra- the changer belts and the bibs and the form fitting jackets, and I said, this is the job. This is the job, <laughs> which is awesome. And she lied about her age on the application. Oh sure, because she was only sixteen, and she was like, yeah, I'm nineteen. 
Oh, there so, you go. Got the job. That is crazy how just easy that was back yeah. in the day. Like, I mean, so many people joined up with the world wars and even Vietnam. Just exactly. saying, like, no, I'm 18. Well, that was the thing. Like, she got the job pretty much because women were starting to fill all these roles that men usually had. So, right. but yeah, she just kept going in and asking for an application until they gave her one like, every <laughs> single day. So. So at around the same time that she got the uh, cable car job, she also became pregnant. Uh, I didn't see anything on who she became pregnant through, but she I, she didn't have the father figure in the picture afterwards. But Angelou called the birth of her son, who she would name Guy, the greatest blessing of her life. And her mother was very supportive of the pregnancy, always offered advice, never judged her for it. And... Once Guy was only two months old, Angelou decided to make the move to move out on her own. And before she left, her mother said, quote, Remember this, when you cross my doorstep, you have already been raised. With what you have learned from your grandmother in Arkansas and what you've learned from me, you know the difference between right and wrong. Do right. Don't anybody raise you from the way you have been raised. And remember this, you can always come home. End quote. And I thought that was probably my favorite thing that I read from this whole story is that her mom was like, you can always come back. I'm always going to be here. Right. Oh, so, that's so powerful. In the mid-1950s, Angelou's career as a performer started to take off. She landed a role in a touring production of Porgy and Bess and later appeared in the off-Broadway production Calypso Heatwave and released her first album in the same year, 1957, Miss Calypso. So from someone who just didn't talk for five years to now releasing albums and starring in Broadway or excuse me, off-Broadway productions, she didn't let what happened to her in her childhood, you know, take that voice away. And she's starting to really become her own own person and to develop her own career, you know, at this yeah. point in her life. I actually just remember, I'm pretty sure Porgy and Bess, I think that was the production when we did our Howard Hughes episode. That was one of the productions mm, yeah. he got mad at the studios for because it was an all-black cast, pretty much. That's right. And Howard Hughes was like pretty known as a racist. He wasn't the be- he was a very influential guy, but obviously not the best guy. So, are he- you telling me a billionaire in the sixties was yeah, a racist? white billionaire Whoa. from the early nineteen hundreds? <laughs> yeah, but he- that was the production that he like refused to work with a studio for. I'm pretty sure. Something like that. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Angela was also a member of the Harlem Writers Guild and, of course, a very prominent civil rights activist. Angela organized and starred in the musical review Cabaret for Freedom as a benefit for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also serving as the conference's northern coordinator. So she's starting to really get involved with the civil rights movement. I mean, of course, with her childhood. Seeing all that, of course, wanted to change it. Yeah. Do something about it. This is a huge step for her moving into the Harlem Writers Guild and stuff and starting to write because, uh, I mean, she got married to a white man in the like early 50s, then got divorced pretty shortly after. And then she had to travel for work to start doing dancing and acting and all this stuff. But that meant that she had to leave her son at home. Mm-hmm. And she hated doing that because her son was like her whole world. So eventually she got that on understudy in New York, which gave her like steady income and stuff. And she didn't get the role because the main actress described her as, quote, a big old ugly girl, end quote, which is (laughs) terrible. (laughs) But then when she moved to the Writers Guild, she started getting regular work. She started writing and she met like 
MLK Jr. She met Malcolm X. She met all of these influential people and started getting way more involved in activist movements and all that and became a very big voice in those movements. Mm -hmm. I'll dive a little bit more into the activist part of her life. Uh, We're just going to wrap up kind of her singing and uh, Broadway career. Uh, in 1961, Angelou appeared in another off-Broadway production of Jean Jeanette's, and I quote here, The Blacks, with James Earl Jones, Lou Gossett Jr., and Cicely Tyson. James so Earl James Jones. Earl Jones, man. He a is, young James Earl Jones. He's eternal. He's <laughs> awesome. Angelou went on to earn a Tony Award nomination for her role in the play Look Away and an Emmy Award nomination for her work in the television miniseries Roots. During the 1960s, Angelou spent much of her time uh, living across the world, first in Egypt and then in Ghana, where she worked as an editor and a freelance writer. And that is where she met MLK, or no, that is where she met uh, Malcolm X. Yep. Angelou held, also held a position at the University of Ghana uh, for a short period of time, and in Ghana, she joined a community of revolutionist returnees exploring pan-Africanism and became close with human rights activist and black nationalist leader Malcolm X. In 1964, upon returning to the U.S., Angelou helped Malcolm X set up the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which disbanded after his assassination the following year. So when we say she was involved in like the civil rights activist, she was a very prominent player, organizer, and just an incredible woman uh, in a time where being a being just i mean just having the color skin that she had almost put a target on her back and yeah. now using her voice to speak out against the different injustices that her people were going against it's it's incredible yeah and she said that the uh death of malcolm x affected her so much that she actually fell mute for a, a short time again after he died so he, mm-hmm. that shows how close they were but uh, yeah, when she moved to Egypt, she became a very big anti-apartheid activist and became the only woman editor of the Arab Observer newspaper. So she's getting involved in pretty much anything she can. Diving into Angela's poetry career, she published several collections of poetry, but her most famous was the 1971 collection, Just Give Me a Cool Drink of Water Before I Die, which was nominated for a Pulitzer. She then went on to have... Five different, or excuse me, she then went on to have five famous collections of poetry, including Oh Pray My Wings Are Gonna Fit Me Well, and Still I Rise, Shaker Why Don't You Sing, and many more. Yeah, and it's uh, around this time, too, that she writes her first autobiography. Yes, she publishes her memoir in 1969, and it's kind of the book that Basically, what really made her very famous, and it's known as I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. This memoir, excuse me, this memoir focuses on her childhood, as well as her young adult years. And this book was just, I mean, to put into words and into pen what she went through, uh, just, it takes, I'm going to use the word courage a lot during this episode, but... That's yeah. a lot of courage. I mean, a lot of people do struggle with just even speaking about the different instances and terrible things that have happened to them and to use her story as something to almost be a light for others and to see, basically say, I was able to get through this. 
and do something incredible, I think is probably one of the most brave things. Oh, yeah. One more brave things that we've even covered on the show. Well, and it not only like was it brave for her to do it, but then it gave other people the strength mm-hmm. to tell their stories. And even a bunch of schools were trying to ban the book from like their libraries and stuff. But because Again. it helped so many people and it was a bestseller, they couldn't really, and nobody could really get rid of it that easy. Right. I mean, she literally made history as the first nonfiction bestseller by an African American woman. Yeah. In the 1960s, yeah, 1970s. Uh, uh, an American poet and academic named Eugene B. Redman said of, of her book, quote, Here's a black woman who takes off the cuffs. Here's a black woman who writes her story. It was a very important literary feat because it says it's okay for a black woman to say what happened to her in public in literary form, end quote. So everyone recognized how vital this book was for a community that really needed a voice. So... Yeah, and it's still regarded as one of the most popular autobiographical agro autobiographical autobiographical <laughs> works of history, and you can definitely see why. And she almost didn't write it either. It yeah. took some convincing to get her to write this. So yeah, her friend James Baldwin really had to urge her to to write it, and thank goodness that she eventually did because I mean, it's I personally have not read it, but of course, it's just one of those books that just gives such a shining light to people who went through the same things as as she did growing up. In 1995, Angela was lauded for remaining on the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list for two years, which at the time was the longest running record in the charts history. That's nuts. So this book was so influential that it stayed as a bestseller for two full years. Angela's follow-up work, titled A Caged Bird, was her memoir that covered her life as an unemployed teenage mother in California, where, due to this situation, she turned to narcotics as well as prostitution. She then went on to write a few more memoirs covering the different time periods of her life, including Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas, which is an autobiography about her early career as a singer and actress. The Heart of a Woman, which was a memoir dedicated to leaving California with her son for New York, where she took part in the civil rights movement for the first time. All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, which was a lyrical exploration about what it means to be an African-American in Africa. And this book covers the years Andrew spends living in Ghana and Egypt. Yeah, it's cool that she wrote like so many. I think it's cool that she separated the works like that, where it's not just one singular book telling her entire story, but she could really get into the details of the different parts of her life and how it shaped and formed the person that she became eventually. I think that's a really cool way to do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all these, she wrote, I believe, four or five more memoirs about the different time periods in her life. And I mean, it's just such an interesting story. You can't just have one book about like her life was just such an interesting story that you can't have one book. She's, Um, she's definitely one of those people that we talk about that wears a lot of hats because she has a lot of different credits to her name. Oh, totally. Um, only one, only other one that I'll highlight is a, and it's titled a song flung up to heaven, which of course was another autobiographical, I don't know why I can't say that word. <laughs> Autobiographical work. 
uh, where Angelou explores and talks about her return from Africa to the United States and the struggle to cope with the assassination of two human rights leaders with whom that she had personal or where they had a working relation, including Malcolm X, like we mentioned, as well as Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, because she said about MLK Jr., like, quote, he reminded me of my brother, small, beautiful speaking voice. He became my big brother. I became a little girl again, end quote. So they had a pretty like tight-knit relationship as well. I mean, I don't think she saw him nearly as much as she saw Malcolm X. Right. But still, the fact that she said that he was like a big brother is pretty pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's, that is extremely cool. Um, apart from her memoir, she also wrote cookbooks, which I thought was a very interesting, like, she's fighting for, of course, civil rights. She's doing all she can to tell her story. But at the same time, she's like, I got this killer recipe. Can you imagine <laughs> all the different recipes she has for all the traveling she's done and stuff? Oh, oh that thing's got to be full of some gems. I want to buy it. That would be, there's just probably bangers in there for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then she also wrote a book. I don't, I don't have the name on hand, but she wrote a book about her mom, like in her relationship with her mom, which is super cool. Yep. And that one's titled Mom and Me and Mom. Angelou's career has seen numerous accolades, which include the Chicago International Film Festival's Audience Choice Award, as well as a nod from the Acapulco Black Film Festival in 1999 for her work in Down in the Delta. She also won two NAACP Image Awards in her outstanding literary work in the nonfiction category for her cookbook and 2008's memoir letter to my daughter. She also met Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Hey. Yes, her and Oprah were pretty close. Uh, Oprah described her, uh, quote, she was, always, or, she was there for me always, guiding me through some of the most important years of my life. The world knows her as a poet, but at the heart of her, she was a teacher, end quote. And Oprah credits her with a lot of the reason why she is the woman that she is today. So I thought that was pretty cool because that was when she was just like a news television mm-hmm. news person. And then she became the oprah winfrey that we know today so just think about all the different incredibly impactful and historical figures that this woman's life touched yeah and who she's directly said to have inspired she directly influenced the landscape of the civil rights movement in a big mm -hmm. way like who knows if malcolm x would have done the things he did if she wasn't involved i mean i'm I'm, maybe i'm overstating it but Mm -hmm. i mean still she had to have had some sort of influence to bring him back to america with her and start an organization here and stuff so right like the two names that we dropped malcolm x and mlk jr who are basically the two when you think of the civil rights movement those are like the guys the names names, and then like rosa parks of course yeah but i mean huge after experiencing health issues for a number of years angelou died on may 28 2014 at her home in winston-salem north carolina The news of her passing spread quickly, with many people taking to social media to mourn and remember her. Singer Mary J. Blige and politician Cory Booker were among those who tweeted their favorite quotes by her in tribute, as well as President Barack Obama, who issued a statement about Angelou, calling her, and I quote, a brilliant writer, a fierce friend, and a truly phenomenal woman. Angelou had the ability to remind us that we are all God's children, that we all have something to offer. Yeah. So again, that's another influential figure in American history, the first African-American president 
Yeah. Uh, also regard this woman with just the most respect and the most, I mean, extremely high praise. So speaking of president, like she did a presidential poetry speech at one right. of the inaugurations and got awards for that too. So yeah, she did a lot in her life. Yeah, I believe that pres- presidential inauguration speech was at Clinton's. Yeah, I think so. A little ironic, but it was at Clinton's. Yeah, so it was. She she did a lot. She was very important. And last note here: in May of 2021, it was announced that Maya Angelou will be one of the first women to be commemorated with a new series of quarters from the U.S. Mint. Hell so yeah. Her image and her likeness and her story will live on forever in the shape of U.S. currency. Yeah, and her books are still still out there selling. Still very much selling. Yeah, so good for her, man. She's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you just it was great doing research on her. I mean, the amount of impact that she had on all these influential figures, it just makes you think that there's so much that goes into like those movements that everyone ranging from you know these incredible authors writers singers also worked and kind of put their careers on the line to just be associated with mlk jr or a malcolm x yeah um i guess we won't go too much into it but like malcolm x was like and yeah malcolm x was like public enemy number one by the fbi for a long time mm-hmm. and so even just being associated with them Maya angel was putting her career at risk and she basically did it and yeah and if you we are where we are today obviously if you want to know more there's five six books that she details her life mm-hmm. so i mean if you want to go read more about her you can we just did a brief overview on her for our our highlighting of women who had impacts in different places in the world. So yeah, there's, if, if you guys want us to, we can do like a full series on her. We can get the books and read all through them and do a more detailed breakdown, but yeah, super cool woman. Also. <laughs> oh man. Never mind. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, moving on then. Uh, we're, we're <laughs> that might gonna, be a cut. Nope. We're leaving that one in. Uh. <laughs> Uh, so next, we are going to talk about a woman known as Toshiko Akiyoshi, and I'm personally not a huge jazz person, and I don't know if you are, Evan, if you're very well versed in your, your jazz musicians. I'm not too versed in my jazz musicians, besides the, I would say maybe like the famous ones, the little bit of jazz that's in La La Land, the musical. As well as the B movie, where the B asks, "So you like jazz, or do you like jazz?" <laughs> and dates a woman, and dates a, woman. <laughs> a human woman. Well, yeah, that doesn't get talked about enough. But uh, yeah, my experience with jazz is the fact that my mom used to waitress at a restaurant that played jazz music because it was like a nicer restaurant, and so that's where I get all my qualifiers on whether jazz is good or not. It's whether <laughs> I could hear it at that restaurant. So I did listen to like some of her music on the way here, and it is super cool. So. I would qualify it as restaurant quality jazz music. Oh, there we go. <laughs> In my very unimportant and uh, uninformed opinion. But Toshiko Akiyoshi, she was born in Manchuria, which is an area of the world historically known as part of China. And she was born on December 12th, 1929. Uh, during the 1930s and into the mid 40s, Japan actually held control of Manchuria under colonial like control. But after World War II ended, the Japanese inhabitants of Manchuria were forced out of that area. 
So this pushed Akiyoshi and her family to move back to Japan, where they were introduced to the hardships of post-war life. Uh, she remembers that the family basically lost everything once mm-hmm. this move happened because they couldn't really take anything with them. It was kind of, a, hey, you're done here. Get out. Move back to wherever you can. So she had a lot going on as a child. It got, yeah. got uprooted very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for young Akiyoshi, she was actually able to play piano while she was in Manchuria. But once the family got kicked out, she didn't have anything to play. Her family couldn't afford to get her any instrument of any kind. So she didn't really have any musical experience for a little while. But the local clubs in Japan needed musicians to entertain the soldiers that were stationed there, as well as the local community who wanted to dance and just listen to music. I mean, it's post-war Japan kind of got hit hard at the end of the war. So a I lot think of the, napalm, a lot of napalm. Yeah, the people kind of needed something to bring the spirits back up. So music and dancing is the one thing that they could kind of, well, not the one thing, but one of the things that they had that they could kind of focus on and try and get their minds off what had happened. But this gave Akiyoshi another opportunity to play piano. So she began to take jobs at clubs and this would also help just bring money in for her and for her family. And by 1951, Akiyoshi was playing piano professionally and actually leading her own jazz group at the age of like 22, 21. So she moved very quickly up in the ranks and now is leading her own group, which is kind of crazy for a woman. Yeah, a supreme talent. Yeah. So she quickly showed that she had the prowess to be a force to be reckoned with in the musical industry. The next year, after forming her group, Oscar Peterson, who is one of the greatest jazz pianists of all time, he's won seven Grammys, has a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Recording Academy, he's a big-time guy in the jazz world, discovered Akiyoshi while on his Philharmonic tour of Japan. So he was so moved by her playing that he persuaded producer Norman Granz, who is acknowledged on the internet as, quote, the most successful impresario in the history of jazz, end oh. quote. So a little bit of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was convinced by Oscar Peterson to record Akiyoshi on his Verve record label. And this is kind of her first big break, gave her the opportunity to come to the United States in 1956 and study at the Berklee School of Music in Boston, making her the first Japanese musician at the school. Yeah, Berkeley's a big deal. Yeah, it's kind of a big name. Yeah. And being the first Japanese musician at the school had to be quite intimidating, but also very exciting. Well, especially post-World War II. I mean, yeah. When we, I don't think we really, on this show, have talked about internment camps. I know as a nation, we don't want to talk about yeah. internment camps either. <laughs> we try to forget that. Yeah, but I mean, post-World War II was not kind yeah. to uh, people of her... Of her descent, of her ethnicity. And, so, and she's a woman. And she's a woman so, as well. Yeah, it's, I can see very, it would be a very daunting thing to do, but I mean, it's also like you're never going to get this opportunity again. So right. you have to really balance that. Like truly the amount of courage to fly literally halfway across the world. Yeah, leave your family behind. To Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. Massachusetts. After this, she moved to New York City in 1959 and established herself as a bebop player, which was like a form of jazz that was popular around that time. Akiyoshi does remember facing discrimination in the jazz world, not only because she was a woman, but because she was Asian. And in an interview, she recalled hearing people ask, quote, 
Japanese play jazz? Really? And in addition, people were also asking about a female leading a jazz group. So it was sort of like a, a double whammy where it was like the really, really kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she was quickly receiving judgment for, from all sides. But shortly after moving to New York, Akiyoshi married her first husband, a saxophonist named, named Charlie Mariano. Oh, wow. Hey, yeah, they, they have the Festival of Seven Fish at Christmas for sure. Oh, yeah. So the two formed a quartet together, and Akiyoshi continued to make her mark on the world of jazz. She began to show her hand at being a composer and arranger for big bands in 1962 and worked with some of the most influential composers of the 20th century, such as Charles Mingus, who was the first African-American composer to have his work acquired by the Library of Congress. So she's she's working with the big boys. Mm -hmm. First Oscar Peterson, then uh, Grands producing her music for her. And now Charles Mingus getting involved. These are all big names in the jazz world. I, I mean, I don't know a lot about jazz, but mm-hmm. I, I looked into them all a little bit, and yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, her talent is just, it's one of those like classic sayings that you hear in sports, like, talent always wins. I mean, she was extremely talented and gifted and just used those gifts to propel herself despite facing all these different hurdles. Yeah, it's hard when your talent speaks for itself as much as it did in her case. Right. So her first marriage didn't last too long, but by 1973, she was married to her second husband, whose name was Lou Tabakin, and he was a saxophonist and flutist, or flautist? Flutist? I think flautist. Guy, guy who plays the flute? Yeah. <laughs> flute or scooter? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the two moved to Los Angeles, where Akiyoshi formed her first jazz orchestra, known as the Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra. Oh, dang. Fair, not, a, not a super creative name for it, but I mean, she's getting her name out yeah. into the world in a big way. Either way, just to have your name on something Attached like that, to it, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Her husband, Lou, who was playing with the Tonight Show band at the time, helped to fill her orchestra with some of the best musicians in the area. So she had a connection through the man that she fell in love with and married, and he was able to help her push her dreams forward, which I think is super cool that he was like, I'll play for you. You can lead. I'll play for you, and mm-hmm. I'll get other people who can play for you. But he didn't want like any of the credit. So this pushed the Toshiko Akiyoshi Jazz Orchestra to become super successful, and they won the best jazz album in 1976 by Stereo Review for the album Long Yellow Road. Ever ambitious, Akiyoshi wanted to branch out more musically and decided to write woodwind sections for her band and began to introduce Japanese themes and instruments to the music as well, which eventually became a trademark of her work. So not only is she just a brilliant jazz musician in general, but now she's starting to blend all of her upbringing and cultural influence that she had from her time in Japan, obviously, into her music. And you can hear it in some of the songs. You can hear those traditional Japanese melodies mixed in there, and it all blends really well together with that jazz sound. It's honestly really impressive. I mean, that has to be one of the most unique sounds that anyone's heard to that point. Yeah. I mean, two completely different cultures, styles of music kind of blending in. Yeah. That's very cool. It's also very cool how many uh, like black, prominent black artists she worked with. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously jazz was, we got it from 
that culture. So I mm-hmm. mean, it's really really cool to see all of them intermingling together and working together to make this make this huge push for this uh, genre of music. And to be this successful, too. yeah, seriously. In the early '80s, the couple moved back to New York and restarted their band with New York talent. This time, continuing to see that huge success they saw in LA, her band debuted at Carnegie Hall as part of the 1983 Cool Jazz Festival. And cool is spelled with a K, so you know it's real. Oh, that's cool. how you know! Holy cow! Yeah, uh, whew, holy Ooh. cow! <laughs> They went on record or they went on to record 22 albums and received 14 Grammy nominations. Jeez. Toshiko Akiyoshi was the first woman to place first in the best arranger and composer in the Downbeat Readers poll, which was and still is a large jazz publication magazine. She was honored at the Shija Hosho, which I couldn't find any information on. But apparently she was honored there by the Emperor of Japan in oh. 1999. And I don't know why there's no information on this if she was honored by the Emperor of Japan. Uh, all I could find when I looked up Sh- Shija, Hojo, Shija Hosho was a One Piece character. Oh, really? <laughs> so it just kept saying, did you mean? And did then you it, mean? It was like this pink-haired woman from One Piece. I'm like, no. No, I didn't a little, mean, little different. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Throughout the 2000s, she was honored again by the Emperor of Japan, as well as received the NEA Jazz Masters Fellowship, which is the highest honor that America gives to jazz musicians. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. I don't know what NEA stands for, but they give out a very prestigious award. She published an autobiography titled Life with Jazz in 1996, and it's in its fifth printing in Japanese. So. Wow. Very popular over there. In 2003, Akiyoshi disbanded her orchestra and focused on piano, stating, quote, It has been 60 years since I discovered jazz and made it my lifetime work. I am so gratified to be recognized for my endeavors, especially my infusing of Japanese culture into the jazz world, making it ever more universal. End quote. Yeah. She's still alive today. I think she's, yeah, she would be. 90 92 i saw yeah yeah she's she's getting up there but she's still kicking she's still around yeah yeah if you want to listen to her music there's a bunch of it on spotify they're all like there's a bunch of re-recordings and stuff so it's all all good quality it's not like a a uh not like a scratchy recording from a club club back in like the (laughs) 60s or whatever so yeah Mm -hmm. if you want to go listen to her just look her up and find some of her music it's really cool i like i said i'm not a huge jazz guy but Same. just hearing the story of how she moved up so quickly from being kicked out of a country back to her home country, having to play piano in clubs to help support the family, and just because she liked it. And All within in like post World War II Japan. Yeah, within like five years of doing that, she's already getting recognized by one of the most premier jazz musicians in the world who's mm-hmm. traveling to Japan on tour. Like, it's insane. <laughs> and then from there, it just skyrockets. That is so cool. I mean, when you talk about, again, using the word courage, just the courage to fly across the world, really put your entire life, I would say, and career like on the line. Like you, It has to work out, or it's just not going to work they out. They say don't put all your eggs in one basket, which she did. She did. And it worked. Yeah, so. and it worked. <laughs> but yeah. It worked 
to extreme success. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think she kind of realized when she got recognized by Oscar Peterson, like, I must have something going on yeah, I got to, be, something. to be recognized by this right. guy and like being asked to move across the, the world for my talent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't see it's it's hard to re- deny that opportunity. But at the same time, like we said, you're coming to an, a very segregated America that just had a very big discrimination right. outbreak against Japanese people in general. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, very cool. Yeah. Love those stories. Got her name right the whole time, too. So I'm very proud. I'm proud of myself. I'm very proud. And I, I didn't want to like butcher it because she's super cool and a very influential woman. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I could hopefully do due diligence for it. Yeah, definitely. But that concludes two pretty amazing stories, two pretty incredible women who broke barriers in their own different ways and two pretty different fields as well. Two yeah. different uh two different fields. So very, very cool. Both um, artists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean she she wasn't as involved in like the I don't at least from what I could read, she wasn't as involved in like the civil rights stuff and all that. But mm-hmm. I mean, either way, like she's already breaking boundaries. So Oh, absolutely. But a little shorter episode today, guys, but we hope you guys enjoyed our telling of these two stories. Uh, like we said, there's a lot more information on both of these. They both have their own biographies. So if you want us to do more coverage on either one, just let us know. Absolutely. But in the meantime, if you want to continue the conversation right away, you can find us on all social medias on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at Whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram. TikTok and YouTube uh, at Gems of History Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We have our own, do we call it fan group or discussion group? I usually call it a discussion group. Oh, but I'm obsessed with my ego, so fan club. <laughs> <laughs> fan club. But you can find our discussion group, The Agora, on Facebook. Just type in The Agora or Gems of History Podcast and it should pop up. Uh, and we also have our Gmail Gems of History Podcast at gmail.com. Got it. Zuki just woke up. Yeah, Zuki's now up. Good job. Thank you for contributing. <laughs> and she's back to sleep. And back sleeping. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we're going to go back to medieval times next week because that's <laughs> where my mind is apparently wandering lately. So you guys can look forward to that. But let us know if you guys have any other stories you guys want us to cover. You know, Evan just told you where you guys can reach us. We've, we're very reachable people. So reachable. We're out there. You know. Should we give out our pager numbers as well? Should we give out our home addresses? Social security? Yeah, I think that might help. Just in time for tax season, People too. might pay attention to us then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in time for tax season. Anything for those clicks, baby. But thank you guys all for listening to this episode of the Gems of History podcast. Hope you guys all have a great week, and we will be back next week to tell you more tales of strong, independent women who don't need no man. Everyone out there, stay polished and take care of one another. We love you all.